um, I'm here to tell you that I, I believe in the Bible. Here's why. The rest of our time is going to be why. <laughs> I grew up, uh, my first introduction to the Bible was because of my mother and a long history of faith from my mother's side of the family. And uh, I was introduced to the scripture, but what I realized as I got older in my life was the gift isn't just being introduced, but it's also working through my own uh, older adult understanding of the scripture. Because all of us, even if you were raised like I was in a church setting, um, or if you came to faith as in, you know, later in your life, uh, we all have to come to a place where we have to figure out what the Bible really is, what it means for our living. And it's uh, so critical for us. And history is full of uh, uh, the Bible and uh, the way the Bible developed. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in our time together today. But the reason I believe in the Bible is because I, I believe the Bible is reliable. That what we have really is what God intended for it to be, and I'm going to try to outline a little bit today why that is, but I also believe the Bible is relevant. It is, it is for today, even though it was written, uh, most of it uh, finished uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. It's not just that there's a 2,000 year gap where we're just looking at a historical document, is that it still is something God works in and through as a primary means for us to know God, for us to know what it is to be human, for us to know what it is to relate together and to relate to God. I believe the Bible is reliable, and I believe it's relevant. It is the best-selling book of all time in the world. If you uh, were to go out and look at uh, best-selling books, uh, you would find often on those lists things like The Tale of Two Cities, or even The Lord of the Rings, or The Little Prince. But the Guinness Book of World Records still says that the Bible is the world's best-seller. And recent, recent estimates put uh, the number at over 5 billion copies. That's a lot of books. We're in, uh, you go back to the previous slide, we're continuing in our uh, series on, uh, did we get the previous slide, right? Um, on our series, the Believe It or Not, as we're walking through uh, some things about spiritual disciplines. And what are the practices that help shape our lives and how do we align ourselves regularly so that God can do in us what we most desperately need done? And today we're looking at, at the Bible as it is the world's best-selling book. There's still, around the world today, over 100 million people who do not have a single verse of the Bible translated in their heart language. And there are groups working toward that uh, right now. The Bible through history... Uh, began with uh, scrolls, and uh, the Hebrew people were so good at, at uh, getting the Bible, translating it, moving it into uh, a codified form, and, and sharing it with the people along the way. And then, uh, as history progressed and writing methods changed, we, we moved into other forms of, uh, of writing the Bible. Um, there uh, where it was a time when illuminated manuscripts were so uh, amazing and beautiful and decorative, and uh, today, of course, if you're like me, you may have a copy of the Bible right on your phone. How many of you have a Bible on your phone? <laughs> it doesn't make you a better person, but it's just uh, interesting. So if you didn't raise your hand, don't feel bad. It's just, it's amazing how we get the Bible in so many different ways. You can even get the Bible now in audio recording, so you can listen to the Bible, like so many generations have done. You know, throughout most of history, people didn't have a Bible 
in their home. They didn't have their own Bible to, to read whenever they wanted. So you would come together as a church or as a faith community and you'd hear the scripture. So listening to the Bible is also a great way of, of interacting with the Bible. You know, William Tyndale was one of the great uh, people of history. And he was one of the early uh, writers in England in the 1500s. He was educated in Oxford. And uh, he uh, came along and he was one of the early people to translate the Bible as it was being translated out of Latin and into uh, the vernacular, into the language of the people. And uh, he, his, so he was driven by the idea, this is what he said, that he, he wanted the Bible available to the common person so that a boy who drives the plow would be as familiar with the scripture as even the Pope himself. And so having the scripture available, and this, this is part of what drove the reformers back 500 years ago, was that the Bible could be translated and given, and so that we now benefit from having the scripture uh, available to us. So I believe that the Bible, that God has given us the Bible, that we might really know and love Him because of it. And so I just want to explain a little bit of why that is, because whether you grew up in church or came to faith later in your life, we all have to come to a place of understanding, coming to a conclusion about what the Bible is. And if the Bible is a reliable guide for God, and if it has authority over my life, because if it is God's instrument for us to understand God, then it has some extent of authority or a lot. You have to make some decisions about that, or it's something else altogether. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Would you open them to 2 Timothy chapter 3? And while you're looking there, I want to just share with you, this is uh, Paul's last letter that he was writing. Timothy was um, was one of his protégés. He was mentoring him and had been for a, a, quite a while. And before we get into the verses, I just want to set the context about where this comes, because the Apostle Paul is highlighting in this passage uh, what it means to either live a life with God at the center or to live a life with you and yourself as the center where everything revolves around you, your decisions, your flow of life, the things you spend your money on, the, the way you spend your time, the, the choices you make, the activities you involve yourself in. It's either going to be centered around yourself and what you think and feel uh, is pleasurable or right, or you're going to let God be the centerpiece. And, and he goes through talking about how you must be careful in the choices that you make, because the choices you make have repercussions in your life. Some last a lot longer than others. He gives some examples that we are not to follow. And he lays those out in chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3. He says there are some in the church, this is what he said, who are always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They're always learning, but they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then he gives a couple of examples like the, they are like these kind of people. They said they're, he's, these people are like Yannis and Yambres. These are two names that are uh, they're not really listed in the Bible. They're associated with, you remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and began, God through him began to do the plagues in front of Pharaoh. And there were magicians in the early part of that story that came, that came in the first couple of uh, plagues and they, they actually imitated through their magic arts. The plagues that God was instilling on Pharaoh, when it came to the, the third plague, they could no longer uh, imitate and, and make pretend that they were doing what God was doing. But the 
before that, they, these were the two names associated with those magicians, people who, who sought out knowledge but never came to an understanding of the truth. Paul was pointing out, before we get to our two focus verses, that there are people in the church that have sort of a, a, an expression of spirituality, but that they lack uh, really the power that comes with that. And then, so he's setting up a contrast. And then he says, but there are better examples, Timothy. Remember Timothy? Timothy was a boy uh, who, who grew up with his mother and grandmother being taught the scripture. And then Paul went and got him and set him up, prepared him to be a pastor of the church. And he says, there are better examples, Timothy. He says, I've been your, your mentor for a long time. I am a, a better example to follow. And remember your grandmother. And remember your mother. Because they are better examples to follow. And both Paul, or all three, Paul, Timothy's grandmother, and his mother, all had a common source for what made them good examples. And it's the Bible. It's the Bible. The Bible is God's reliable guide, and it's relevant for our living. Here's what Paul says after all of that in verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Just two points in the time we have left. Number one is the Bible is reliable. And number two is that the Bible is relevant for life today. The Bible is reliable. Paul described the Bible as being God-breathed. So I want you to work with me here for a minute. We find your favorite hand... Take your best and favorite hand and just kind of hold it up in front of your face. Take a big deep breath. Blow on your hand. The Bible is God-breathed. The Bible is breathed out by God. It's an expression. It's an exhaling of who God is. It is to point us to who God is. And it is reliable. It is reliable. We could go and talk about a thousand different ways that, that help prove and give me confidence, at least, that the Bible is reliable. I just want to point out three of them this morning. One is the manuscripts. What, how do we get the Bible? It came from, from ancient manuscripts. and uh, We have more ancient manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts of the Scripture than any other ancient document. Any other, by far, I mean, thousands, thousands more. That's not an exaggeration. That's not preacher talk. And more than people like Plato and Aristotle or Caesar, anybody else who wrote in antiquity, the biblical manuscripts that we that we get our Bible from, there are thousands more manuscripts. And here's how our scholars worked on it. They, they would go back and they would examine sometimes full manuscripts, sometimes portions of them, and they take all of them that are from the same part of the Bible, and they compare them, and they analyze them, and, and they see where are they different and how consistent have they been translated, because they used to be translated by hand, one writer after another, generation after another, and it is mind-blowing how consistent and accurate these translations are, and how consistently God has taken the Bible for what it was, and how it has been delivered down to us. The Bible has amazing manuscript evidence. Well, there are people who might come along, especially where we live, who are skeptical about the Bible, or, or want to kind of make fun of you if you take the Bible too seriously. And, and they might say, well, goodness, if you just take one portion of the Bible, what about Jesus and the Gospels? I mean, we all know, don't we, that Jesus walked the earth, but the Gospels didn't come along for two 
for 300 years later. And I mean, after 200, 250 years, isn't that uh, so much time to go from, here's the historical Jesus, 150, 200 years later, now Jesus has been really blown out of proportion in their imaginations, and he, they wrote about him as somebody that he really wasn't. But that's not at all the case. The Bible, there wasn't that big gap between when Jesus walked the earth and when the Bible was actually written. In fact, the writings of Paul were done 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, not 200 years. The Gospels were given to us 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And you may think, gosh, that's a long time. But not, not for ancient writings. Because we need to remember that Peter did not write blogs. Paul did not send text messages or direct messages. The Jerusalem Times did not write headlines and articles, so he didn't have news in the same way that we have news. In fact, that is, that is a very short time frame from antiquity in the way that they actually carried into uh, their, their living and into their understanding of reliability of Scripture. If you look at the New Testament, there are also names written, like actual first names of people and it's easy to just kind of gloss over that. Oh, it's part of the narrative story. But put yourself in the mind of a first century believer in a church. The Apostle Paul writes a letter. It's written on a scroll. It's rolled up. It's delivered. And you're, you're in Rome. You're part of the house church in Rome. And uh, suddenly the, the letter is delivered from the Apostle Paul's pen. And it, you, you sit in your gathering and somebody unrolls it and begins to read what the Apostle Paul says. And, and in that letter there are names given. And it's kind of like if, if Bearcat weren't here today. Hi, Bearcat. But let's say Bearcat wasn't here today. And Terry calls Bearcat later. And he says, Bearcat, you missed the men's quartet. I can't believe it. You missed the men's quartet. Bearcat says, I didn't know they were singing. I wish I had been there. And Bearcat goes and calls Charles. And says, hey, Charles, tell me about the men's quartet you're singing today. Charles would have said, well, I can't believe it. Bryce wore the same color tie that we had. <laughs> So Barakat missed it. Then he had the names of the men's quartet. He could call those guys and he could verify what was going on. Because these are real people. They're not fictionalized names. It's not just made up. So if you had confusion or you had doubts or you wanted some clarity on the events, you could go and find the people. You could go and talk to them. And there's dozens of these names given throughout the Scripture. So there's manuscript evidence. We could go on and on about that. But I believe that the Bible is God's chosen instrument to communicate to us most clearly because of manuscript evidence. It is breathed out by God because it is reliable for us. There's also archaeological evidence. We could go on and on about this, but uh, there have been so many times in history where people have been mentioned in the Bible. There's no, there's no evidence outside of the Bible that, that certain people ever existed. And people will say, well, this, this person, of course the Bible can't be trusted because we don't have any evidence outside the Bible. Any mention in history for these people. And this, this happens somewhat regularly. And over and over, it seems like every time the archaeologist turns over his spade with new dirt, that there's new discoveries that confirm the Scripture and the historical record of the Scripture. One of those uh, was Pilate. For a long, long time, there was never any mention of Pilate. You remember Pilate, the character, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman representative of Palestine, and Jesus was brought before him, but Pilate didn't want anything to do with him. He's a pretty big character at the end of, uh, in the moment when Jesus is crucified. But there's no record anywhere in the world outside of the Bible that Pilate ever existed. 
And so that would be one way that people would say, oh, you can't really trust the Bible. And then archaeologists uncovered a plaque, and it describes Pilate. And finally, there's new archaeological evidence that, that confirms and affirms the historical record of the Scripture. Over and over goes, Sir William Ramsey, uh, some time ago, was an archaeologist from England, and he was a skeptic about the Scripture. And uh, he, he was going to go to the Holy Land, and especially go to the areas where uh, the book of Acts chronicles its activity, because much of that had not been uh, excavated and looked at and examined. And he goes there assuming that he would have his doubts confirmed, that these cities and places could not be discovered. And every single point on his trip, he would find just the opposite. And it, it tipped him to a place of being, from being a skeptic to a believer because he realized the archaeological evidence pointed to the reality of the biblical record. And it continues to do that over and over again. So I believe the Bible is reliable. It is breathed out by God because of the manuscript evidence, because of the archaeological evidence, and finally because of the unity. The unity of the Scripture. There, our Bible today has 66 books. We think about them in two parts. The Old Testament leading up to Jesus and then Jesus' birth and coming into the world and what happened because of him now and then the birth of the church. There, it was written by 40 different human authors in three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. And it was written over a period of 1,500 years, 1,500 years. So I want you to, to know and, and just appreciate the fact that it wasn't somebody, it wasn't Bryce Butler sitting in his garage for three or four months and coming out with my computer and handing you my computer my flash drive and say, this is the revelation God gave me. Would you trust me? No. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would not want you to trust me. The Bible wasn't created that way. It did not come to be because of that. It wasn't just somebody saying, I have this great revelation. They sit down with pen and paper and start writing it out. It was done over 1,500 years in 40 different, through 40 different authors in three different languages covering thousands of topics. And it was written one letter at a time. And these people never thought that, that the Bible would actually, all these different writers would be collected together and put together by the early church and saying, this is, this is what we think and trust is God's word to us. But here's what's so amazing. Out of all of that, that there's an amazing unity of the Bible from beginning to end. It talks about God's creating people for a purpose of relationship. We broke that relationship. And the rest of the Bible talks about God's work to repair that relationship and to bring us back into fellowship with Him. Out of all of that, all of that time, all of those languages, all of those authors, it has one unified story. And that just blows my mind. That God would so preserve it and protect it and so work through history in such a way that it is amazing to me at least. I believe that the Bible is reliable. The Bible has been reliably translated. It's been reliably preserved and it's been reliably handed down. And because of that, it matters. And because of that, for me, it has authority over my life. Because it is God's Word breathed out for me, I have to listen to it. I have to respond to it. I don't have the option, if I'm going to be a faithful follower of Christ, to set my Bible aside and never look at it. That's not an option. 
If I want to walk with the Lord, a living God who gave me a living word and wants me to live by it, can I get a witness? Amen. Does anybody agree with me? Yes. Yeah. The Bible's reliable, but it's also relevant for today. The Bible is timeless and it is timely. As uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he goes on, he gives us two more uh, important elements that not only is it uh, reliable, uh, but it also is is relevant in its equipping and its training capacities. It is, it is something to equip us through, that uh, God's Word is breathed out so that every man of God might be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped, having the right preparation and the right tools for a job matter. David, could you do your job with statistics without a computer? That'd be pretty hard, wouldn't it? Have you ever tried to do a job with the wrong tool? There are times I've, I've been out and, I don't know, why me and, me and screws kind of have problems sometimes, but I don't always have the right screwdriver. Have you ever tried to, to do a screw something without with a penny or I, I fish in my pocket, I pull out a key or try to manufacture my key ring in a way that can actually undo the screw? And Sometimes it works, but most of the time it's like an exercise of folly because I'm trying to do the right thing with the wrong tools. Paul says to Timothy, God says to you that he's given you the Bible so that you can be equipped for the work and the life that God has for you to do. He has given you the Bible so that you have the right tools to take into your life so that you can manage and work within your life. A chef has an apron and sharp knives and the right instruments. I tried to make an omelet once and I didn't have a high heat sort of spatula. Guess what happened when I put that uh, dessert spatula in my hot pan? I didn't have eggs anymore. I had something else, but that, it's like a crayon just melting right in my pan. It helps when you're in the kitchen to have the right tools. It helps if you're an auto mechanic to have the right wrenches, right? To have the right diagnostic equipment that you can hook up to your computer and, and you can steer with the computer in the car is telling you what's wrong with the car. When you have the right tools and you have the right training, you're able to do the right work. That's what the scripture is intended to be. It is relevant. It's not a 2,000-year-old historical document. It is relevant for your life today. God intends it to be so. As you go to work, you're able to enter into your work life with honesty and integrity. As you deal with your marriage, I tell you, there, there's nothing better for me in my marriage that if things get to a limping along point with Susan, you know what God always brings to my mind? He takes me to where it says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. And then I'll begin to say and remind myself, God, help me remember, how does Jesus love the church? And I know he loves the church sacrificially because he gave his life for the church. And in some way that I'm supposed to love Susan sacrificially. And, and he loves the church unconditionally because he took the first step. It didn't matter what the church thought of him. And so I don't have to wait for Susan to behave herself for me to start doing right to her. You know what I mean? She always behaves herself. It's, just, it's up to me to take the initiative to her. Jesus loves the church unconditionally. It doesn't matter how Susan feels about me in a particular moment or, 
But whatever I am called to love her the way Jesus loves the church, and part of that is unconditional love. And we can go down the list, but that's how the scripture works. It equips me, it gives me the tools I need as a husband. As a parent, I know that I am to train up my children in the way that they should go, that I'm not to exacerbate them. That's the hard one for me. Right, boys? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was rhetorical. <laughs> but I have a responsibility, not because the world tells me it is, but because God's Word says it is so. God's Word calls me to live a life of responsive obedience. And He calls you too. It is a reliable document. And it is relevant for your life. It tells you, it guides you in the way that you are to use your money well. The way that you are to trust God in all things. And on down the list it goes. Where did we get the golden rule, if not for the Bible? To do to others how you would have them do to you. Straight from the lips of Jesus. You know, when David went to face Goliath, King Saul tried to give David tools that he was unfamiliar with. Remember that's part of the story? He says, David, you're a young boy. You're not a seasoned soldier. You're kind of scrawny. If you go out and fight Goliath and you lose, it's going to be the end of all of us. Here, put on my armor. Take my... Take my staff and my shield and take my weapons out. David tries them on and they don't fit. And so he throws them down and says, no, no. I'm going to give the tools that God has given me. I'm going to take the tools God has given me. And he shows up and Goliath laughs at him. Because all he had was his regular clothes. He has this little slingshot and five smooth stones in his pouch. Did he need anything else? He took the tools that God had given him. And he went to work with those tools. The Bible is given to us so that we are equipped with the things we need for our living. It's also to train us. It's to prepare us. Now, you can have the right tools, but if you don't have the right training and know how to use them, then they're kind of useless, right? So the Bible also gives us the training. It says that it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Some people might say, well, it's culturally regressive. I mean, we come to an enlightened space in our worldly culture today. And there's things taught in the Bible that just aren't kosher with our thinking in the world today. And my response to that is, I think that's kind of historically arrogant. To say that right now, in 2019, we're at the mountaintop of historical and cultural understanding. And that we're at the point of history by which we survey the entire past. And anything into the future will be judged from the way we look at things right here, right now. I think that's culturally arrogant to look back on things without, without trying to understand the cultural setting in which they emerged. And it, it, it's a demeaning process for those who have gone before us. Do you not think that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, when they hear stories about you, that they might not scratch their heads and say, I can't believe he thought that. I can't believe she did that. Because you're a product of your historical and cultural setting too. And so to claim that certain things are culturally regressive, I think is quite a step of arrogance myself. It, it's, it, it, there's an underlying premise there. 
Some people don't like entering into Scripture because it challenges the way they think. Because they, they've worked hard to have this sort of understanding on this particular issue. And they don't like having challenged. Sometimes they'll read it and it's shocking. But I'm here to tell you that there should be times when you read the Bible and it challenges your thinking. Because I don't believe that if, it, if you're reading the Bible regularly, you're honest with yourself and, and you're listening to God's Spirit in you, then there are going to be times when you're challenged. There are going to be times when God says, Hey! Hey! Somehow you got to a point where you now have become the center of your life. Just like Paul warned us about. It's time to correct that and let me now be the center of your life. You, you're working your life around me. And here's how you do it with the Scripture. You learn to read the Scripture. You learn to meditate on the Scripture. You learn to study the Scripture. You get the Scripture into you so that Christ can be formed in you. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he says, you know, there, there are temptations for us to fashion God in our own image. And so it's, it's so tempting for us to say, well, my goodness, the culture believes this on whatever the issue is. And this is what the, the predominant cultural view is. And so God must also think this. This is what I really believe. And so God must also think this. And then we, we come into conflict with something in the Scripture that challenges us. And we have, we have a decision to make. Are we going to wrestle with the Scripture? Because that's what we need to do. We need to be people who wrestle with the Scripture and aren't afraid to enter into it and say, this confuses me, or, or this, this doesn't make sense to me. Maybe even times, I don't like this. But we can't just ignore it. We have to enter into it. We have to wrestle with it. We have to let God do His work in us. Tim Keller says, you know, we have a temptation to create a step for God. And you might remember the movie Stepford Wives, where the, some husbands in Stepford, Connecticut, they, I, I don't know, I haven't watched it, but I guess they get tired of, of their wives sort of uh, challenging their, their thinking and their thoughts. So they create robotic wives, and they're, they're, they're very uh, malleable, and they, they, they're always complimentary and everything else, but it's not a real relationship. There's no real person there. There's no real personality because they're not in a position to challenge or to offer anything of life. And so God, God, if we don't allow Him to challenge our thinking, then He becomes no more to us than a step for God. That He becomes a robot and He must sort of assume and work in the way and think the way we think. And if, if you're never challenged by God, I, I would ask you to think, how, where's the place of intimacy in your relationship with God? Because in your personal relationships, those of any depth, you know, real friends have the, the ability and the invitation to challenge you on things. You know what I'm saying? Real relationships, you allow people to challenge your thoughts, to contradict you maybe, because, you know, they have your best interest and they love you. And so God is the same way. When you interact with Scripture, He will challenge what you think about certain because that's part of your growth in the Lord. And you need to look for it and welcome it. The Scripture is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We are called to meditate on it day and night. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us be those who meditate on your Word. That you would help us, God, be those who take 
And if we've never really examined the Bible and thought about its trustworthiness or what exactly I really believe, maybe we we trust the Bible, we come here to church, we hear it kind of spoken about, but it has no real part in our daily living. May we be open to your Spirit's prompting today. To be reminded that Jesus himself said that we don't live on the eggs and pancakes of our breakfast or the salads of our lunch. That's not all that we live on. We live on more than Doritos and burritos and Pepsi. That our lives, our most important lives, they're fed on every word that proceeds from your mouth. So God, give us, I pray that you would grow in us a hunger for your word. That we would hunger after you. That we would desire to read the scripture because we know we're not just reading a novel. Because we know we're getting to know you through it. So Holy Spirit, won't you guide us into this so that we can be people who believe and trust in the Bible. Because it's reliable, it is breathed out by you, and it is relevant for our living. It is both a training guide and an equipping for our life as you have laid them out. So guide us in these things we